when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The Conservative Party is increasingly unhappy as Boris Johnson tried and failed to force his man in as chair of Parliament's powerful Intelligence and Security Committee. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what happened and happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be exploring the extraordinary row over the Intelligence Committee and Downing Street's problematic week, including dealing with bullying issues regarding Home Secretary Priti Patel, with political editor George Parker and political columnist Robert Shrimsley. And later, I'll be delving into the government's long-trailed decision to block Huawei out of the UK cellular networks by the end of the decade, with our defence editor Helen Worrell and telecoms correspondent Nick Fowles. So George and Robert, lovely to speak to you again. And you, Seb. Hi there, Seb. So the PM announced this week that masks are going to be compulsory from July the 24th. It's still a bit of a messy policy. It's unclear what we're supposed to do with masks in offices. And I'm keen to know, have you both been wearing masks out and about? If so, where and what kind? And George, we were in Parliament this week and I don't think I spotted you with a mask from cycling in from West London. No, I think cycling in from West London in this weather, wearing a mask would be a bit counterproductive. But I have to let you into a secret here, Seb, and I think sensitive listeners should avert their ears now, which is that on a r- rare occasions, I don't feel quite up to cycling home in the evening. So I take my bike on the train uh, down at Waterloo. And the other day, they'd run out of masks for passengers. So I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And this is disgusting, I have to admit. But I removed a sock I've been wearing all day and held it over my mouth for 20 minutes back to Richmond. How disgusting is that? That is absolutely dreadful. I'm going nowhere near you again for the foreseeable <laughs> future. Um, Robert, you must be able to somehow better George's hygiene. Well, I have to say I suffer from a high degree of mask envy that wherever I go, whenever I see someone with a better mask, I immediately want to go and buy it. Though I'm happy to say that the George Parker's sock store is one I won't be (laughs) attending. But I'm more of a wearer whenever I'm indoors and I pay great attention to what others have in case it looks better. Well, I've got a selection of fabric masks that were made by a charity raising funds for uh, a little community, which are quite heavy and they're quite warm when you're on the tube. So I've actually been using a box of medical masks that I bought from Amazon. And I was delighted when they came to see they were made in Wuhan, the center of the coronavirus crisis. So (laughs) I'll be using plenty of those from July the 24th for going anywhere. But thankfully, no masks are required for the recording of this podcast. So let's discuss the acute political difficulties Downing Street has found itself in this week. Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee met for the first time in seven months this week. Across Westminster, it was expected that former Minister Chris Grayling would be appointed as its new chair, not least because Boris Johnson had stacked the membership of the committee that oversees the work of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ. 
But out of the blue, a 68-year-old maverick and perennial rebel Julian Lewis managed to outfox number 10 and usurp Mr. Grayling to lead the committee. For his troubles, Dr. Lewis was immediately booted out of the Conservative Party, who was then swift in his revenge by ensuring the committee will publish its long-awaited investigation into Russian interference in British politics. The whole sorry episode speaks volumes about Number 10's issues with its own party. So George, why did Downing Street want to stack the committee? Out of all the people, why did it want Chris Grayling as its new head? Well, everything about this saga is ludicrous and doesn't reflect at all well on Number 10 Downing Street, to say the least. This Intelligence and Security Committee, it's, it was set up to provide scrutiny over the security service, something the public can't do. So it's not like an ordinary select committee. It's one with, which is endowed with an incredible amount of importance and power to keep an eye on the people who are keeping an eye on us. So it's very important. The problem is that from the last parliament, there was a leftover report, which has been sitting gathering dust for quite a few months now, about Russian interference in British politics, including alleged Russian interference in the 2016 Brexit referendum. And you can probably guess why Boris Johnson would be rather keen to keep this under wraps, certainly before the general election. But in the end, it was going to have to come out. But the committee can carry out all sorts of work on other things. And so Boris Johnson wanted to control the committee in the way he's trying to exert control over many parts of the government. And Chris Grayling, a former minister in Mr Johnson's government, obviously with a long list, and you only have to go on Wikipedia to see it, of political disasters to his name, was selected. And I guess Boris Johnson's view was that Chris Grayling was a solid sort of chap, would be grateful to have his career and his name rehabilitated in some way by joining the list of the great and the good who've previously chaired this committee, people like Dominic Grieve, Malcolm Rifkind, Margaret Beckett. And they thought that Chris Grayling would probably owe them a bit of a favour, as it happened, uh, and one of the more amusing parts of this saga is that intelligence failings at the top of the government, particularly in the Whip's office, meant they didn't see this coup coming. And in the end, we ended up with Julian Lewis, this veteran Conservative MP, someone who I think uniquely in the House of Commons refuses to answer emails from constituents and wants them to write to him, is now in charge of a committee which is overseeing all sorts of things, including highly sophisticated electronic data questions. Now, of course, Downing Street insists that it has nothing to do with choosing who leads the committee. They nominate the MPs and the MPs nominate the chair, as Michael Gove told MPs. The Intelligence and Security Committee's uh, membership was chosen by this House. Uh, An election was appropriately taken place. But whipping matters are quite properly matters for the respective whips offices of our parties and not for those like myself who exercise a different constitutional role. Robert Shrimsley, the sense that I've had from Conservative MPs that is that this is an issue about whipping here. The Conservative Whip's office is all over the place and they just didn't see this thing coming and that's really who's to blame here. Well, I mean, they certainly are to blame, but I don't think they're exclusively to blame. And there's something spectacularly disingenuous about the um, M- M- Michael Gove saying it's not for us to decide who the chairman of this committee is and then throw someone out of the party because they've disobeyed what the government line was. Uh, I-, I think you know the other point about Chris Grayling, by the way, is, is also as much about favours as it is about wanting to have their man in place. You know, they, they pushed, he's almost the only significant Brexiter that they pushed out of government when, when they took over. And he's one of those people they feel is owed something. And this was a nice bauble to throw him. And I think it's as much about that. As to the Whip's office, I think it's staggering of them not to have grasped the very, very simple math that if somebody else felt they would have a go at um, getting the chairmanship of a committee, they would talk to the opposition MPs to do so. So, I mean, if the Whip's really, really did miss this happening, then it doesn't speak very highly of them at all. 
So the formation of the committee, George, it has nine members, of which five were Conservatives and four opposition, three Labour members and an SNP fellow. And essentially what happened was that the opposition MPs were very unhappy about the prospect of Chris Grayling leading this committee. Maybe you can tell us why that might be. They went to Dr Lewis and said, how do you fancy it? He didn't tell anyone. He put his name on the last moment and he managed to turn the tables on it. There was a lot of controversy around the idea that Number 10 was trying to appoint its own person in the shape of Chris Grayling to do this job. And while the other Conservatives on the committee were prepared to back Chris Grayling, that's John Hayes, Mark Pritchard and Theresa Villers, the opposition MPs, with some justification, felt that Chris Grayling was a person whose ministerial career in the past disqualified him from the job. So despite Julian Lewis being a bit of a maverick character, I think they thought he would be a more credible candidate to run the committee than a Number 10 placement, as they saw it, in the shape of Chris Grayling. I mean, let's be fair. I mean, Chris Grayling wasn't any good at scrutinising the departments he was running. So the idea he could scrutinise something he's not running is, I think, risible. If you're sitting there as Julian Lewis, you've been you know, the Defence Select Committee, you've got years of experience worrying about um, intelligence and security and defence matters, and you see Chris Grayling arrive with no experience relevant to um, this committee and a very, very poor track record as a minister, you can't blame him for thinking, hang on a minute, I could do this job better. And I do think this is one area where the government really fell down in its choices, because traditionally, this job has gone to someone with significant ministerial experience who is no longer in government, but significant ministerial experience in home affairs or security or defence. And they managed to pick someone who just didn't tick any of those boxes. Now, George, the other political trouble Number 10 has found itself in this week has been about Pretty Patel. The Home Secretary has been under investigation for allegations of bullying, which she strongly denies. And the FT revealed that they've been sitting on the report, which was apparently concluded weeks ago by the Cabinet Office, and it doesn't want to release it because some of the findings will be pretty embarrassing. So, George, what do we know about what Pretty Patel has done and why is this whole thing taken so long? Because this investigation began back in March after the permanent Secretary of the Home Office, Philip Rutland, resigned. Yes, well, Philip Rutland went out in a blaze of glory, making all sorts of allegations about a culture of bullying at the Home Office, which, as you say, Priti Patel denies. Um, an inquiry was launched. Um, you know, The government has made it clear it takes bullying very seriously for obvious reasons, and it became a huge issue in the last parliament. And Helen McNamara, who's in charge of ethics at the Cabinet Office, civil servant, was put in charge of investigating this. And she looked not just at what Priti Patel's record had been at the Home Office, but she went into her record at other departments, including the Department of International Development. The report was completed. It was handed in to Boris Johnson, and it's been sitting on his desk gathering dust. And for the same reason we think the Russia report wasn't published, we think that there are some pretty damning uh, revelations in the report that Helen McNamara's put together. So we're waiting to see if this report will ever see the light of day. Now, the government denies there's been any political interference in the investigation. If we go back to what Michael Gove again told MPs this week. Ministers such as myself uh, have no role or oversight. Uh, it, it is the case that the, uh, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary, the Director General for Propriety and Ethics, um, with the help of the Prime Minister's um, uh, external advisor on the Ministerial Code, will be conducting uh, the conversations required. Um, and I'm afraid I can say no more because I know no more. 
Now, Robert, this feeds into Number 10's war on the civil service as well, because we know Helen McNara, who's a very powerful person in charge of this investigation. She's a close ally of Mark Sedwell, who we know has been ousted as cabinet secretary. And the general sense that I've picked up this week is that the report was completed by her, but the findings and potential sanctions were not necessarily what Number 10 wanted, because it gets into this thorny issue of the ministerial code and whether it was broken and who it adjudicates on it. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the point is, it's her job to, to deliver a report and it's Boris Johnson's job to decide what to do um, once he's he's got the report. So uh, one needs to be a little bit careful. I mean, when you send an inquiry into a cabinet minister to, 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 to the Permsec or the second Permsec to adjudicate on, you're not looking for, it, for them to, to, to come up with a guilty verdict. And I think the problem is that Helen McNamara has come up with some things that at least make Pretty Patel look bad, even if they're not um, hanging offences. But it is also interesting, if you look at what has happened so far with the leadership of the civil service, there were stories earlier in the year about the hit list of senior civil servants the government wanted to remove. They wanted to get rid of Mark Sedwell, the cabinet secretary, Philip Ruckman at the Home Office, um, Simon MacDonald at the Foreign Office, and Tom Scholar at the Treasury. Well, Tom Scholar is the only one still standing. So the government is working its way through the people it doesn't like. And if you're a senior civil servant who incurs the displeasure of Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings or Michael Gove, um, you can begin to see the consequences. So that has to have an impact on independence um, and it has to worry people. And it's certainly having somebody as independently minded as Helen McNamara overseeing these kind of issues is something that the government is not going to enjoy if it carries on. And there was even talk, George, that Helen McNamara might be moved on from her position before this inquiry is made public or before we know there's any conclusion to it. Now, we've been told that that's not necessarily the case as of yet. But the fact that Number 10 were even putting this out there or considering it does show that when they've got a problem, they're just happy to move on civil servants rather than deal with the core political issue here. Yeah, and there's a pattern of behaviour, isn't there? Which, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about the attempt to control the Intelligence Service Committee, You've got the most senior civil servants in the land being moved on because they don't, for whatever reason, fit in with the Johnson project. Uh, if you look at the case of Tom Scholar, as Robert mentioned, the Treasury Permanent Secretary, look at how the Treasury's handled the response to the coronavirus crisis. Look at the strong relationship between Rishi Sunak and Tom Scholar at the Treasury. Um, Tom Scholar's highly regarded. You know, if he's moved on as well, it just suggests that you know people are being moved not because of their ability or what they can bring to the government of the country, but just because of their their views. In the case of Tom Scholar, obviously, you know, regarded as a remainer. So it's a it is a worrying thing. And um, you know, the independence of the civil service and people being able to speak truth to power, as the, the saying goes, that's a really important part of our constitution. And if there's a chilling effect running through the civil service, which I think there is at the moment, where that people feel constrained about what they can say to ministers or to number 10, that's bad for our governance. And I think this is a key point, is that, you know, it, it's not unusual for governments to want people at the very top of the civil service who, you know, are at least committed to their project, who are going to help them deliver the, the agenda that they were elected to deliver. It's happened before and it will it will happen again. But what I think is striking this time around, another good example of this was the appointment of David Frost, the chief Brexit negotiator, um, as the government's national security advisor. They are, seem to be prioritising far more ideological sympathy or loyalty than they do qualifications for the job. And I think that's the concern that people have. You know, if these civil servants are pushed out and replaced by somebody else manifestly up to the job who the government feels it can get on with better, then that's fine. That's that, that that's not unusual. But it's when they just start putting in people who feel a little bit too much like placemen that you begin to worry. 
I agree with that, Robert. And I think what we really have seen is two traits that are behind Downing Street here. The first one is about loyalty and that Priti Patel has been incredibly loyal as Home Secretary. That's why they want to protect her and why this inquiry has been sat on, because if it came out, it might put her at risk and make her position impossible. And the same with Chris Grayling and Julian Lewis as well, that Grayling was loyal to Downing Street. That's why they tried to fix the ISC committee for him and why they acted so quickly to kick out Julian Lewis. But in some ways, the behavior is very much a bunker mentality. It's the sort of thing you'd expect from a government that's been in power for 10 years and is getting to the end of its tether rather than one that's been in office for less than six months. Yeah, but I think, again, that if you look at the people in number 10, first of all, a lot of them built their reputations with Boris Johnson, at least, through the Vote Leave campaign. And they are, their instincts are to campaign, their instincts are to go onto the front foot, to be aggressive with the problem. Offence is the best form of defence. And the second thing is that, of course, they thought of themselves until... Boris Johnson became Prime Minister as an opposition. They they did have a bunker mentality. They had a group mentality because they'd worked together fighting the existing government, which was Theresa May and before that, David Cameron. So that tightness and that cliqueiness is absolutely in there. And you add in a certain boisiness, a certain macho nature, the, the, you know, the, 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 the clubby nicknames. And they're just a very, very tight group who reinforce each other's instincts, the good ones and the bad ones. George and Robert, thank you. For weeks, it's been apparent that Boris Johnson's government would perform a gigantic U-turn and bar Huawei from its cellular network. The Prime Minister has been under pressure from his own Conservative MPs, as well as the Trump administration, over links between the Chinese manufacturer and the Chinese state, something the company firmly denies. The announcement came on Tuesday when Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden announced that no new Huawei equipment would be installed from the end of this year and all existing kit would be removed by 2027. He told MPs this week that the UK's National Cyber Security Centre had changed its mind on the threat from the Chinese state. The world-leading expertise of NCSC and GCHQ has enabled us to publish one of the most detailed analyses of the, of the risks of the, to the 5G network. The UK is now acting quickly, decisively and ahead of our international partners. But the government has warned this will come at a high price and slow down the UK's rollout of next-generation technology. So Helen Worrell and Nick Fouts, thanks for joining us. Helen, can you explain the U-turn this week? Sure. Well, it's been a, a rocky road since January. After that decision, the government had, as you've said, a fair amount of pushback from Tory MPs who were opposed to it and from the US administration. But the real crunch point came on the 15th of May this year when the US announced suddenly that it was going to impose new sanctions on Huawei, which essentially cut off Huawei's access to chips, which were made using US technology. Now, this has been described as a kind of surgical strike by the US against Huawei. It's been tremendously potent and effective in essentially limiting what the company can do. And from a UK security point of view, the threats are real. One security official said to me at the time that these were first announced that what they were most worried about was that as a result of these new sanctions, China would have to go into a sort of rapid wartime style production of chips which would mean that all the UK's sort of previous insights and intelligence about how the Huawei supply chain worked would be lost. So this turned from an exercise about managing 
the risks of a known product, which was the basis of w- on which the decision was made in January, into the problem of engaging with an entirely new set of kit, which might be changing and developing very rapidly. Now, Nick, as we said, this has been a long trail decision. The telecoms industry knew this was coming. What was their reaction to Mr. Dowden's announcement? Uh, one of utter frustration, really. I mean, I think, uh, as Helen has said there, the, it was clearly signalled that uh, something had changed. So whereas in January uh, they were battling very hard to to argue that Huawei shouldn't be banned or if it should be, it should be over a very long period to be able to gradually deal with that as commercial companies. I would say after the new US sanctions, there was a sense of resignation and you know uh, more of a tug of war about how this could be mitigated for their balance sheets and for the resilience of their networks. The issue for the telecom sector is one of certainty. Uh, this is a sector where the companies involved spend billions of pounds upon, uh, on kit that is then critical, obviously, for their millions and millions of customers. Uh, but it, it also sort of is something that is like a 10-year investment cycle. So for the government to go from Huawei is fine to Huawei should be restricted in terms of the amount you can use to you can't use it <laughs> has been... Has, has been a, a, more than a headache, almost like a catastrophe for some players who've been planning their 5G strategy for the best part of five years. Now, Huawei obviously knew this decision was coming and it's warned that removing it from the UK networks would hold back its 5G rollout and result in much lost investment. This is what its UK spokesperson, Ed Brewster, told the BBC. We're seeing a coordinated campaign of attack to lock Huawei out of the global technology supply chain. We spent $18 billion with US suppliers last year. We're a global technology leader. This year, we'll invest $20 billion in R&D. That's where our leadership comes from. Nick, how problematic is that going to be here? Because Huawei has a very big presence. You know, one of the things I wrote about this week is the extent its lobbying operation has gone within Westminster. It seems nearly every public affairs firm in the UK has been doing work for Huawei in some form there. So aside from that, there are going to be real economic and job implications to this decision. Huawei, as Ed Brewster said there, is a big company. They employ sort of sub-2,000 people here, high, highly skilled jobs. This is not to be taken lightly, and I think that's the point the whole industry has been making, making recently. They're a very established company, and Britain uh, has played a huge role in the development of Huawei, which is why symbolically this is a hugely important U-turn for Huawei because the, the impact of infection into other countries who had previously thought, okay, well, if GCHQ says this this equipment is fine, we can use it, they may now be thinking again. So whereas the UK is, to be honest, a relatively small market in the great scheme of things for global telecoms, symbolically, this is is a huge loss. So Helen, you and I have tracked a lot of the political reactions to this decision over many months as it's been coming down the pipeline. And part of it's been from the Trump administration. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has come to the UK several times and he's warned about the dangers to the special relationship if the UK allowed Huawei any role in its 5G network. But it's also been from Conservative MPs too. And a couple of months ago, the Johnson government almost was defeated when 38 MPs rebelled on the Huawei decision. And it's really been described to me in some ways as less of a security decision by Downing Street than a political one, that they knew they were going to get defeated in Parliament on this. They had to find some way around it. And the chips dilemma you were posing earlier actually is a way for Downing Street to change its mind without looking too embarrassed. 
I think there's maybe some truth in that, but I think I wouldn't overemphasize it. I, I definitely got the impression after the US sanctions were announced that this was very much a different category of problem to anything that NCSC had dealt with before. And I didn't get the impression that they were just you know, trying to sort of find another answer to the same question that they'd been asked in January, I got the definite sense that this was something that was of sort of critical concern to them and did pose a new challenge. And when you look at the pressure from Conservative MPs, you know, some of them are very happy with this news. People like Tom Tuggenhatcher of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, who's been very hawkish on it. But some of the even more hardline Conservative MPs, I'm thinking people like the former Tory leader Ian Duncan Smith, have said 2027 is in fact too far away. But if the date was brought forward even more, that could have real tech implications, Helen. It could. And obviously, Nick knows more about this than I do. But the companies have said for a long time that they need a lot of notice and a lot of time to make these sorts of changes. I mean, one thing I would say is I don't think it's only the Tory MPs that are potentially, you know, a a little bit concerned about the longer time frame of phasing Huawei out. There have been some very gradual hints from the US this week that maybe they too would have preferred a slightly quicker path to banning Huawei completely. Uh, Mike Pompeo is going to be, as it happens, in London next week. I understand he's going to be meeting some of the Tory MPs who are most concerned about Huawei. I'm sure this issue of how long it's going to take the UK to ban Huawei from the network is going to be something under discussion with them, You know, maybe a future lobbying point with the UK government. Yeah, uh, what we heard from BT this week, who uh, have been the most explicit in terms of cost, is that although uh, there is now a further uh, ban on Huawei, i.e. a sort of gradual phase out, a glide path away, the seven year of time frame uh, means that they can stick with their original guidance of it costing them about £500 million to rip out Huawei. Now, remember, these are not publicly owned companies, these are privately owned companies. So, you know, this is very material for them. I think Helen's right. I think we are going to see some push to bring that back in. And so that equation could change. And the the point the industry would make is, which the culture secretary himself made, is it's not just about cost, it's about delay. The UK made it very clear they wanted 5G. They wanted to be a leader in 5G, having been a bit behind in 4G, which affected our technology industries. So 5G was the next, If whether it's a white elephant or not, we don't know. But we are now definitely not going to be in that position because the telcos are going to have to spend on ripping out older equipment over time that perhaps they could have just let run. And one thing the telecoms companies have warned, Nick, is potential blackouts. They said if you move too quickly, then you could get signals for 4G networks dropping in and out. Based on what the government has said, is that threat now real or is the glide path towards no Huawei involvement actually going to avoid that? I think the glide path will avoid that. Uh, Seven years is enough time especially in the mobile network. Uh, the fixed is a very different thing, but uh, you know, t- to be able to avoid that scenario, I think the uh, the warning of blackouts, whether we believed it or not, it w- would have been uh, for that sort of strict uh, 2024 timeframe where there's just, you know, they're having to supply kit from Ericsson and Nokia. They've got to get it off uh, very, very quickly. And that that would come at a a price in terms of engineering capacity. And of course, Helen, there is a question about alternative suppliers here. The reason when the Johnson government made that decision in January, it was because they said that Ericsson and the other companies that make this kind of kit for cellular networks weren't up to scratch and it was more expensive. Those questions still remain um, despite this U-turn. 
Absolutely, they do. And this is one of the things that the UK government has been most concerned about. And in fact, I think one of the very telling things was as soon as these US sanctions were announced, long before the spies at NCSC had given their final verdict on on what this would actually mean, the UK started up this massive diplomatic lobbying campaign with its Five Eyes allies and also with this D10 group of democratic countries um, to sort of try and get some collective effort towards an industrial strategy to find more alternatives to Huawei in the international telecoms market. So whether or not that's boosting Nokia and Ericsson, whether or not it's encouraging new suppliers coming into the field, or whether or not it's finding other ways in the long term of changing the way that that um, the telecoms market works and making it more diverse. Helen's absolutely right. And the, but it's probably worth pointing out that uh, the interesting thing about this debate is that this is about radio access equipment, which which is sort of passive equipment, the stuff you put on the masts. And the, the irony is that this is a horrible market to be in. Uh, there's only three players for a reason. There used to be 12, you know, Nortel, Marconi, all these companies. And it's really tough. It's low margin, uh, high volume, very tricky. And, you know, you can't get things wrong. So there has been some, if you like, cynicism, skepticism about the UK government's sudden conversion to, you know, we want to become uh, what's called an open RAN sort of industrial sort of powerhouse where British companies will suddenly emerge out of nowhere to, to compete with Huawei. There definitely is a group of smaller, some of them startups, some of the more established companies that are trying to break into this market. But it, it does kind of feel fanciful to suddenly say that Britain or you know, possibly Australia or any other five-eyes country could suddenly create this all-powerful, uh, profitable company in a place that, that the market itself has really struggled. And just finally, briefly, Helen, we should look at this in the context of wider UK-China relations, that this Huawei thing has become a touchpoint for Conservative MPs. We've seen the rise of the Sino-Skeptic China Research Group that's really been driving the pressure on the government throughout this. There's lots of questions over other investment things in terms of the Hinkley Point nuclear power station, Sizewell Sea power station in Suffolk as well. Based on what the intelligence communities are saying and this decision this week, it does does feel as if there's a significant toughening up and that in some ways the UK is just following America's wake in becoming increasingly anti-Chinese. I think that's definitely the direction that things are going in. And in fact, China's ambassador to the UK, Liu Xiaoming, was incredibly damning this week in his comments about the UK's decision on Huawei. He suggested that the UK wasn't able to make a foreign policy independent of America. It, you know, He said that the UK had essentially purged Huawei from its networks and started to view China as an enemy. On one hand, a lot of what he was saying sounded quite extreme, but I think it was extremely telling that a few weeks ago when Boris Johnson was asked about Huawei, the answer he gave was, I'm going to be very careful about hostile state vendors. And he also, at the same time, made it very clear that he said, I'm I'm not a Sinophobe, you know, I'm not instinctively against China. And I think this absolutely sums up the very difficult line that the UK government is trying to tread at the moment. On one hand, it's trying to be extremely clear that post-COVID, It's clear-eyed about the risks that China poses to security. China, in general, is taking a much more assertive foreign policy stance around the world at the moment, especially as we can see what's going on in Hong Kong. On the other hand, 
we need China, we need them to invest in some elements of our infrastructure where we consider that it's safe. And Boris Johnson is very concerned about the idea, you know, that he will be perceived as adopting a generically hostile or xenophobic posture towards what is essentially a very important trading ally. Well, Helen and Nick, it was a pleasure to have you both on the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you enjoyed this episode, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And coming up next Wednesday, we'll have our next interview special with Amber Rudd. I'll be speaking to the former Home Secretary and Equalities Minister about whether Boris Johnson's government has a woman problem. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Josh Delamere and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.